We're in the trenches on Christmas Eve, and about 8.30, the firing was almost at a standstill. An einigen Stellen waren auf der Brustwehr Tannenbäume mit gelben brennenden Kerzen gestellt, worüber die Engländer durch Zuruhe und Hängeklatschen ihre Freude ausdrückten. We had a commotion in the German trenches, and then they began to sing Silent Night. My grandfather was a captain in the Royal Warwicks. He's a man I, I knew little about until I read his diaries. He made contact with two German officers at dawn uh, on Christmas Day. That was really the start of a mass um, exchange of things in no man's land between um, German and British soldiers. As the day broke, the enemy would be seen to bob up and down, and as the British did not fire, they plucked up enough courage to get out of their trenches. I met their officer, and we arranged a local armistice for 48 hours. As far as I can tell, this effort of ours extended itself throughout the whole line. The soldiers on both sides met in their hundreds and exchanged greetings and gifts. The Christmas truce wasn't just one event, it was a whole series of events scattered along a fairly small area of the front line, but it certainly wasn't continuous. Some soldiers died on Christmas Day 1914. They got out of the trench thinking there was a truce and they were shot by Germans who didn't want a truce. So it was a very courageous thing for them to do. It was an experience of a lifetime, I should think, and one very rare. Dann wurde alles ausgetauscht, was jeder gerade bei sich hatte. Tabak, Schokolade, Schnaps, Ordenbänder und vieles andere mehr. Es war ein drolliger Anblick. During the day we had football matches with a new ball sent by some kind friends. So you see it takes a good lot to upset our men and make us forget Christmas. We may never know what really happened. We can't be 100% sure that there was a football match between the Germans and the Allies. There probably was, almost certainly was. What matters is the message that that whole event carries, which is, you know, even at the toughest of times, in the, in the heat of war and in the most dreadful occasions, there can be great humanity. Well, welcome to Hope, everybody. My name is Scott Rains, and I'm one of the pastors here. That was a behind-the-scenes video for a Christmas advertisement by a British supermarket. Uh, I, I don't know if you know this or not, but in Britain, uh, they treat Christmas kind of the same way that we treat uh, the Super Bowl. It's all about the commercials. Earlier this week, my nine-year-old daughter, Saffron, and I, we sat down, and we got on YouTube, and we watched a couple of decades' worth of Christmas commercials from Britain from uh, places like Sainsbury. That was what that one was the 2014 Sainsbury uh, Christmas advertisement about the 100th anniversary of the Christmas truce that happened in 1914 during World War One. And we watched year after year, and we cried, and we got into the Christmas spirit. It was great. Uh, and the reason I wanted to play this video for you today at the beginning of the message is because of what the historian said at the end of that clip. Even in the toughest of times, in the heat of war, in the most dreadful of occasions, there can be great humanity. I know we're pretty good at putting the silver lining on things, but I think most of us would say this year, 2020, has been a dreadful occasion. I've been talking to a lot of people who have, they've had bad experiences in their life, but this year is one of the darkest and one of the most filled with despair kinds of times that they've ever had. Our Bible reading for today from Isaiah chapter 9, it talks about one of the great, um, I don't know, prophecies about the advent or coming of the birth of the, the Christ child. But I like what happens in Isaiah chapter 9 even before we get to that prophecy. 
Isaiah chapter 9 begins with this verse, nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. Nevertheless is a pretty good word. And one of the things nevertheless communicates is there's a whole bunch of stuff that happens before we get to the nevertheless. In Isaiah's prophecy, the stuff that happens before nevertheless is not good stuff. The Assyrians are going to come in. They're going to conquer the nation of Israel. They're going to destroy it. There's going to be a whole lot of suffering. If you're one of the people who's alive during that time, it's going to be very difficult for you to see any kind of light at the end of the tunnel. It's just going to be some really dark times. You turn the page to chapter 9, and Isaiah says, Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. We are not the first generation of human beings to experience darkness and despair. In fact, I've never talked to a person who said, Scott, I got all the way to the end of my life, and I never experienced any times of darkness and despair. It's just a very human experience for us to go through that. And maybe that's the experience that you're having right now as you come in to worship this day. If that's you, I wonder if maybe this is God's word to you today. Nevertheless, no matter how dark the tunnel is that you find yourself in, no no matter how convinced you are there is no light at the end of the tunnel, maybe you need to hear God saying this to you today. Nevertheless, your time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. I'm pretty confident proclaiming that truth to you this morning because of what we see later on in Isaiah chapter 9. We get to this prophecy about Jesus, and let's read it together. Isaiah 9 verse 6 is on the screen. Read it with me. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. Now that's really good news. And and part of what, I mean, the historian in that clip that we watched, he's talking about the Christmas truce in World War I, but he could be talking about people going through, um, I don't know, a, a, a worldwide pandemic. Even in the most dreadful of occasions, there can be great humanity. He could be talking about the very first Christmas. I mean, Joseph and Mary, they're experiencing some really dark times, some dreadful occasions. The Romans are occupying the land. Uh, There's violence and threats of violence day after day after day. They make their way to Bethlehem. There's no room for them in the inn. And then Mary gives birth. A child is born to us. A son is given to us. Even in the most dreadful of occasions, there can be great humanity. I came across a book this week written by Brian Harden. The book is called Sneezing Jesus. And the phrase Sneezing Jesus has kind of a double entendre. Uh, We'll talk about both uh, uh, meanings of of that phrase uh, throughout the course of this message. The first meaning, he's just trying to help us remember Jesus is a human being. It's a very human experience for us to sneeze at some point in our life. Maybe you already sneeze sometime today. If we believe Jesus was human, which we do, then... We believe Jesus at some point sneezed. So the phrase sneezing Jesus is a way of remembering Jesus as a human being, which is orthodox, it's central to what we believe as Christians. Jesus is both human and divine, 100% of both. 
Now, the reality that I find the longer that I'm a pastor is most people have a real difficult time actually thinking about Jesus as a human being. Instead, we almost have a superhero caricature of who Jesus is. We almost always view Jesus through the lens of his divinity. And and I'm going to see if I can prove that to you today. Is that all right? You want to play along and see if we can uh, prove that together? Okay, so it's the Christmas season, and unless you're an absolute Scrooge, you're probably enjoying Christmas songs, Christmas carols. I wonder if we could sing a Christmas carol right now in, in the middle of the message. How about Away in a Manger? It's early in the morning. I'm not a good singer early in the morning, but I'm going to need you to sing along with me as we sing Away in a Manger. Can you do that with me? All right, here we go. Away in a manger, no crib for his bed. The little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. The stars in the sky looked down where he lay. The little Lord Jesus asleep on the hay. That's beautiful. When the choir starts meeting again, you should all come. Verse 2. The cattle are lowing, the poor baby wakes But little Lord Jesus, can we just call a timeout right there? Come on, people. Any of you parents, any of you grandparents, any of you ever babysit babies? What happens when a baby is sleeping and there's a noise that is so loud it wakes the child up from their slumber? The baby cries. So the question, the question is not, do you think Jesus cried or not? Uh, The question is, Why did whoever wrote Away in a Manger think it's important to include lyrics that suggest when the cows were mooing so loud that it woke Jesus up, he did not cry? And of course, the answer is because Jesus is God and God is perfect. And so Jesus would have been a perfect baby and a perfect baby wouldn't cry. A perfect baby wouldn't do anything that makes life difficult for parents. A perfect baby would come out of the womb potty trained already. So we have this idea about Jesus, and again, please don't misunderstand me. Jesus is God. Jesus is always God. And at the same time, Jesus is human, both at the same time. Uh, The Apostle Paul in Philippians 2 says, when Jesus came from heaven to earth, the, the incarnation, when Jesus was born as a human being, he gave up his divine privileges. Some translations say he uh, emptied himself. And so part of what I want to suggest to you is in his 33 years of his earthly life as an incarnate human being, Jesus was God, but he had his divinity kind of tied behind his back. But when we read through the gospels, we don't read it that way. And and let me see if I can prove it to you. So Luke chapter two, it's the classic Christmas story. When we have our drive-in Christmas service on the 22nd, 23rd, and 24th that hopefully you heard about uh, in the announcements, we will read the classic Christmas story where we get the angels and uh, the shepherds in swaddling clothes. By the time you get to the end of Luke chapter two, Jesus is already 12 years old and he goes from Nazareth down to Jerusalem with his family and and relatives. They kind of caravan down to celebrate the Passover. And at the end of that celebration, they have to head back to Nazareth. And so they make their way from Jerusalem to Nazareth, except they forget Jesus. They leave Jesus behind in uh, Jerusalem. This is where they get the plot for Home Alone, right from the Bible, Luke, Luke chapter 2. And, and I love the way Luke writes this. We'll pick it up, uh, Luke chapter 2, kind of in the middle of verse 43. 
His parents didn't miss him at first because they assumed he was among the other travelers. But when he didn't show up that evening, they started looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they couldn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to search for him there. Three days later, I mean, if you ever feel like you're failing as a parent, just read through this story. Joseph and Mary are much, much worse parents than you. You didn't lose your kid for three days. Three days later, they finally discovered Jesus in the temple, 12 years old, sitting among the religious teachers, listening to them and asking questions. And here's verse 47 is the key. All who heard Jesus were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Uh, I started working in churches in 1995 and uh, a lot of time in the last 25 years I've worked with middle school students. I've been amazed at some of the answers middle school students give, but, but not in the way Jesus amazed these uh, religious scholars. How is Jesus, as a 12-year-old, able to impress the leading thinkers about theology and, and the people who know scripture better than anyone else? How can a 12-year-old boy impress them with his knowledge? And I think most of us would say, well, it's because he's God. He wrote the Bible, of course he knows it. Is there another possibility? Never mind the fact that Joseph and Mary lose Jesus for three days. I wonder if for most of his childhood, they were very devoted and dedicated. I mean, the angels say to them, you're gonna be the parents of the Messiah. I'm guessing they took that responsibility pretty seriously. And they made sure that Jesus was raised in a faith community, that when he had questions about God, when he had questions about life and faith, they didn't say, wait until the commercial and then we can talk about this. They stopped whatever they were doing and engaged with their son so that by the time he was 12, he was able to impress the leading scholars. How about temptation? You keep reading through Luke, you get to chapter four and Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. The writer of Hebrews says Jesus is tempted in every way just like we are, but he didn't sin. How does Jesus resist temptation? How does Jesus resist temptation? When he's working with his dad in his father's carpenter shop and, and Jesus hits his thumb with a hammer, he doesn't swear, right? What, what would Jesus say? Oh, me? You have to think about that for a little bit, I know. Um, how about, I don't, I'm not crafty at all. I don't have any kind of carpentry skills, but the one phrase I know about carpentry is measure twice, cut once, right? Measure twice, cut once. Does Jesus even need to measure? Does he just stand there with his x-ray vision, laser vision, and he just makes precision cuts? And everything that Jesus made, it probably, it was perfect, and it probably still exists today, it never broke down. I mean, we have this view of Jesus that he's able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. He's faster than a speeding bullet, more, more powerful than a locomotive. How does Jesus resist temptation? I used to think he snapped his fingers and, and this spiritual force field bubble comes all around him. But maybe there's another way. We're told Jesus would go off very early in the morning while it was still dark and he would spend hours alone in prayer, connecting with his heavenly father. In Luke chapter five, there's this story. It says, one day the Lord's healing power was strongly with Jesus. Doesn't that also communicate that there were days when the Lord's healing power was not strongly with Jesus? 
In Mark chapter 6, he's back in his hometown of Nazareth, and he's teaching, and uh, everyone's hearing stories about this miracle worker, but they're like, isn't he just the carpenter's son? I mean, we know his parents, we know his brothers and sisters, and they're offended that people are saying Jesus is the Messiah. He's not the Messiah, he's just a human being. And Mark writes that Jesus could not do, not that he chose not to do, it says he could not do any miracles because of their unbelief. How can God not have the power to heal at at any moment that he wants to? And yet we see Jesus, there are times in his life where he cannot perform miracles. And and maybe we should ask, well, how does a miracle happen anyway? What what makes something a miracle? How, How about who parted the Red Sea? Most of us would say Moses parted the Red Sea, but no, God parted the Red Sea. God's power at work through a human being parted the Red Sea, and that's what happens with Jesus as well. Jesus, when he's in the wilderness, Luke writes, he is led by the Holy Spirit. So here's what I'm trying to say to you. Jesus, he's God and he's human, but in his life on earth, when he says to us, follow me, if Jesus is able to live the life that he lives, if he's able to love the way that he loves only because he's God, and then he says, hey, follow me, and you do the same thing. We can't, I can't, I'm not God. But if Jesus lives the life that he lives and loves the way he loves because of his connection to his heavenly father that he develops through his prayer life, because of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, then when Jesus says to us, follow me, we're actually able to do that. As simply as I know how to put it, here's why Jesus needs to be both human and divine. Jesus has to be God in order to save us. Next slide. He has to be God in order to save us, and he has to be human to be followed. He has to be human to be followed. And can I just suggest, that when, when we look at what's been happening in our country over the last year or so, part of what's being revealed is a big failure of discipleship on the part of the church over the last couple of generations. We haven't taught people how to follow Jesus. And part of the reason for that is because we focus too much on Jesus being this kind of superhero who is actually unfollowable. We gotta find a holy balance there. And if we can, if we can learn to follow Jesus and trust in our good and gracious God the way Jesus did, then that can change things in a hurry in our own lives and in our world. But the reality is there are times it's really difficult to trust that God is good and God is gracious. Maybe you're in one of those seasons where you're finding it difficult to trust. Uh, It's been a a rough month or so. Pastorally, three weeks ago, there was a 57-year-old woman, a a mother of college and high school students who died, and I officiated her funeral. Two weeks ago, a 47-year-old guy here from Hope Ankeny. And then last week, I was sitting in the living room uh, with a family and a police officer as they told the family about the unexpected death of someone in their family. There are times in our life where it's pretty easy to lose our trust in the goodness of God and to give up hope and, and to feel just very troubled about the reality of our world. And I think it's in those moments where it's really good news for us that we have a God who is human. Jesus actually goes through those kinds of moments as well. 
John chapter 13, John just writes, just very simply, very clearly, Jesus was deeply troubled. Jesus was deeply troubled. It happens in the context of the Last Supper. Jesus is once again celebrating the Passover, this time with his disciples. It's gonna become the Last Supper. It's where we institute communion that we'll celebrate in just a little bit. And as part of that meal, Jesus predicts his death. He says Judas is about to betray him. This causes quite a commotion. Peter's like ready to go, let's fight him. I'm ready to fight for you, I'm ready to die for you, Jesus. And Jesus says to Peter, you're gonna deny me, you're gonna pretend like you don't even know me. And by the time you get to the end of John chapter 13, everyone in that room is troubled, not just Jesus. Turn the page to John chapter 14 and Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. Now, maybe it's just me, but I think if, if we're paying attention to this, it's almost like, I don't, I don't understand what Jesus is saying here. It looks like he's saying in John 14, it's not a good thing for you to be troubled. Don't be troubled. But just one chapter earlier, Jesus himself is troubled. Is Jesus not practicing what he preaches? Is he expecting his disciples to do something Jesus himself doesn't do? How are we supposed to make sense of this? So here's how I make sense of it. Jesus wants us to be self-aware. Jesus wants us to learn to pay attention to what's going on inside us, internally, in our spiritual, inner spiritual world. A couple of months ago, as part of our worship service, I asked you to do an emotion check. What am I mad about? What am I glad about? What am I sad about? What am I anxious about? Just take a little bit of time to check in with yourself. Have you done that since then? How often do you just stop and check in and how am I doing? What is the state of my heart? Jesus wants us to grow and, and to be aware of our internal condition. But he doesn't want us to stay stuck in these places of anger or stuck in these places of sadness or, or troubled hearts. He, our theme this year at Hope is uh, all eyes on Jesus. We want to have 2020 vision. One of the things that keeps us stuck is our refusal to actually look at and see and pay attention and, and learn how it is we're doing. So you look at Jesus, he, he is so self-aware. He's troubled in John 13. He's sad in John 11 when his friend Lazarus dies, he weeps. He, it also says he's angry there and Jesus has this complete self-awareness moment by moment. He's willing to look and to examine and to do that work. But you and I, so many times in our lives, we're just like, oh, it's the holiday season. I always get depressed at the holiday season. It is what it is. Oh, I have to get together with this person or, or with that person. And they always cause me to feel angry. It is what it is. I think that's one of the most non-Christian phrases we could ever use. It is what it is. Are you kidding me? We believe in a God who was born through a virgin birth. It is what it is. It never is what it is when God is at work. So instead of staying stuck, Jesus asks us to learn to trust in God. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. And you keep reading through John 14, and Jesus is like, I'm gonna be leaving, I'm, I'm going away, but I'm not gonna leave you abandoned or, or alone. I'm gonna give you a gift of the Holy Spirit. 
sometimes called the advocate, sometimes called the comforter. Look how Jesus talks about it in verse 27. Read it with me, in fact. I am leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give is a gift the world cannot give. So don't be troubled or afraid. Don't be troubled or afraid, Jesus says, but he tells us why. He's not, it's not like he's scolding us. It's a reminder, I have a gift for you. I don't know what's on your Christmas list this year, but if the only thing you got this year for Christmas was peace of mind and peace of heart through the power of the Holy Spirit, that'd probably be enough, wouldn't it? Jesus is giving us this gift, and Paul will write that this peace that God gives us is a peace that passes understanding, a peace that doesn't make sense in the midst of the trouble and the chaos that we find ourselves in, but it's a peace that does make sense when we trust in the Prince of Peace. I mentioned that book, Sneezing Jesus, earlier on in the message, and part of what that title is getting at is the humanity of Jesus, but there's another sort of nuance of meaning why he calls the book Sneezing Jesus. Um, When is the last time you sneezed in public? Have you noticed that all of a sudden, in the middle of a global pandemic, the biggest social faux pas that you can make is sneezing? I mean, the glares that you get from people if you dare to sneeze in public, it's just, besides the mess it makes inside your mask, it's just awful. But we know sneezing is one of the ways that we spread germs, that we spread sickness, illness, disease to all of humanity. Sneezing Jesus. We're supposed to be contagious as followers of Jesus. Not with an infectious disease, but with an infectious love, an infectious life. There's something about the way we live as followers of Jesus that is attractive to people, and and they want that for themselves. What if the year 2021 could become a pandemic of love and a pandemic of the Jesus way of life as we just start sneezing Jesus everywhere we go? sneezing Jesus in our homes, in our schools, in the places where we work, in our neighborhoods. And instead of infecting all of humanity with some kind of sickness, that baby born in the manger in Bethlehem could be what heals all of humanity. The Prince of Peace, the one who gives shalom, the one who makes everything the way God intended it to be. We started the message looking at a behind-the-scenes video uh, of the making of the Sainsbury Christmas ad. I want you to actually watch that video now as we get ready for communion. Take a look.